0: Um, we're live, yeah, we're live. Welcome back uh, to a new episode of Africa a Country Talk. In short, AIAC Talk. I'm gonna get this time twister right. I'm Sean Jacobs, I'm um, streaming from Brooklyn in New York City, um, and with me is Will Shoki. He's in Durban, this time he's usually in Johannesburg. We are the co-presenters of this Africa a Country's weekly discussion and interview show. This is episode 19. I like how we're traveling. Um, Our producer is Antoinette Engel. She's in Cape Town, South Africa. And if you missed our last episode, we spoke about hip
1: hop and politics. Our guests were American cultural professor, Suad Abdul Karim, musicologist, Warwick Moses, and photography musician, when I hang We spoke about why are so many American rappers, Trump supporters, uh, should we expect that they would be conservatives? Is that an unfair expectation? Be sure to check that out if you missed it. You can watch clips from that show on our YouTube channel and the whole thing on our Patreon, along with all of our episodes from the archive. So please, please, please subscribe to our Patreon.
0: So we have a great program for you today. Our subject is Diego Maradona, arguably the greatest footballer of all time. Well, (laughs) some people don't want to revisit that debate because... It's contested.
1: It's always contested. It's always
0: contested. Some people say Pele. I'm with Maradona, as you can see, I'm wearing a Napoli shirt. Um... We will discuss Maradona's footballing and political legacy. Maradona meant a lot to Africans and people of the third world um, or what some might now call the global south. If you were African, before Cameroon's run to the quarterfinals of the 1990 World Cup in Italy, you supported either Brazil or from 1986, you also supported Argentina. And most likely, you thought that Maradona was the greatest player in the world. And it also helped that Maradona cited uh, with the poor and the oppressed. So
1: here to join us to talk about this are our guests, Pablo Medina Uribe, who's a multimedia journalist and writer based in Bogota in Colombia, as well as Tony Caron, who teaches on the politics of global soccer at the New School of Social Research with Sean in New York, and he's also an editorial lead at AJ+. But before we talk to them, I mean, it's been an absolutely tragic week, for football and generally for culture and politics because we want to first pay tribute to another footballer and, you know, we should probably dedicate a whole show to him as well. But we want to talk about Papa Bouba Diop who died last week at the age of 42, another person who was gone too soon and who was monumental in the footballing world. Sean, what do yeah, you think I mean- about it?
0: Yeah, you know, he played most people, if you like, especially in the English speaking world, I think you, you would know about him because he played for Portsmouth um, and Fulham in the English Premier League. That is, if you like, if you're younger. But if you're a little older, you might remember him from uh, 2002 when he played for Senegal um, in the World Cup in South Korea and in Japan. And it in, in what is now a famous victory, he started uh, the opening game of that World Cup for Senegal, they were playing France. France were the defending champions. Uh, they'd won the World Cup in 1998 at home, and their team included like players like Vieira, uh, Desai Lallian um, Thierry Henry, Emmanuel Petit, David Trezeguet. Um, Senegal, I don't think anybody rem- remembers like who played for Senegal. I mean, later on, after that tournament, you kind of began to realize who played for Senegal, but Senegal was mostly these French-based uh, players Senegal was also playing its first game ever at a World Cup. Um, and in, in the game, and we're going to show a clip in a, in a couple of minutes, in the game, France looked like they were going to score first. David um, uh, Trezeguet, he hit the bar. I'm not talking about the Trezeguet who plays for Aston Villa right now. He's named after this guy. <laughs> um, and then around the 30th minute, um, Senegal made an attack. And Alhajou, who uh, played at the time for a French team called uh, Lens he said Lens? Um, he was, actually, funny thing about him is he was another player in temperament. He was a lot like Maradona um, in how mm-hmm. people reacted to him. Um, and also, like, how he was sort of being projected. He eventually ended up at Liverpool, where he became, like, a star in the Liverpool team. Not a great Liverpool team. We've got Tony Caron, who is a Liverpool fan. Later, I know Tony might disagree with me about some of these things. We're hey, a Liverpool <laughs> fan
1: as well, so make that, make
0: that well, this was, uh, I'm also a Napoli fan, by the way. He beat Frank LaBeouf on the left, and then he crossed for Papa Juve And, you know, Papa Juve was like, I think at that time he was playing in Switzerland. I think he was either on his way to France, or he was still playing in Switzerland with this team called Grasshoppers. And he hit this shot, like, straight at the goalkeeper. Another great goalkeeper, Fabian Barthez. I think he was playing for United at the time. And the ball sort of, the keeper, like, punched the ball, and he, he got a second stab at the ball, and he was on the ground. He was literally on the ground. Um, and he beat the, the keeper, and the ball went into the net. And so the players, the Senegalese players, um, they ran um, uh, to the corner, and the celebration that followed, everything was, like, incredible. It was like something out of the empire. This was like the empire strikes back. Um, and We're going to close the video in a, in a couple of minutes, but more than anything, I think it's, it's, really, it's really like the celebration um, that happens at the end. And I just wanted to quote something. Lauren the boys, a lot of you know, was written a book about um, France, France and the World Cup. He wrote that great book about France in 98. Um, he, just, he wrote a piece for Africa as a country, 20, 2018, when the World Cup was in, in Russia, which is the second time that Senegal was back at the World Cup. He wrote these lines, and I just want to read them. Joub uh, took off his jersey and ran to the corner flag. As his teammates ran towards him, he placed the jersey on the ground, gesturing towards it. It was a powerful point. The jersey scored the goal. He seemed to be saying, "It is the jersey that should be celebrating, moving the focus away from himself. He centered it on the symbol, not as the team, uh, not not just of the team, but on the history of Senegalese football itself. Understanding the deep historical significance of the moment. So, just before we move on, um, just to show you this clip, so you could get like a sense of uh, what this was like." So if I look, and it's Jokic who gets caught in possession here, and it was Dav who put had
1: Juve away, and they've got two striding up in the centre here. Bubačop is there, oh, and
2: Bubajop is there, and Senigall has scored the first goal of the 2002 World Cup after half an hour's play. Papa Bubadrop. Oh just look
1: at this celebration. Remarkable, truly, truly remarkable. Like, yeah, goosebumps seeing that.
0: Yeah, and this was this was kind of equal. If you're if you're older like me, this was kind of equal to like Argentina, Algeria, sorry, beating Germany in 1982 um, with two 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 goals to one in in, in that tournament, and then 1990, right? Well, uh, Cameroon beating Argentina,
1: and not even I don't even think it has to be a matter of comparing it to a game, but for people who are much younger, like myself, (laughs) you think of iconic World Cup moments. And for South Africans, of course, I'm biased to South Africans. Every South African thinks of Spiwe Chabalala scoring that goal in 2010, the celebration that followed the significance of that moment and the fact that this player who, ignoring what would become of the rest of his career, etched himself into the hearts and memories of every single South African by scoring just one goal, Everyone forgot what happened in that game, what happened to South Africa and the rest of that tournament it was the significance of that goal, what it meant to the people who cared about it and how the team celebrated it so I mean this is, this is that mo- this is a, a moment that preceded all of those and really I guess set the set the, the, the scene for, for the the ones to follow
0: so yeah we all miss uh, Papa Dubaju. Um, rest in peace, brother. Um, yeah.
1: Rest in peace. Um, and a reminder to everyone, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or on our website, africasacountry.com. All of our work is published under a Creative Commons license, so please feel free to repost it, we want you to. And please remember, if you have any questions for our guests, put them in the chat on our Facebook, on the YouTube, on the thread of the live stream, anywhere that will get to be seen by Sean, myself and our producer. And now is the time to bring on our first guest whom we're so excited and thrilled to have on. And our first guest is Pablo Medina Uribe, who is a journalist and writer from Bogota, Colombia. And I mean, before we actually get to the questions, I mean, for the audience, Sean, you actually, at some point, thought Pablo, I mean, is this, I mean, Pablo, I mean, how was first of all? How was Sean's teaching? What would you <laughs> Wait, rate my professor?
0: Rate my professor,
1: And <laughs> rate my professor. How was Sean?
3: Yeah, I was in a few classes with Sean at the New School, and more um, relevant to this chat, uh, he was a teacher at the Global Soccer Global Politics with Tony, as well as a teacher, uh, and we had a we had a lot of interesting discussions at the New School. About the
0: Notice, notice how polite and diplomatic Pablo is. He's not telling you how <laughs> bad I was
3: as a professor.
0: He's, we had interesting, discussion. interesting discussions. the class. Interesting
3: discussion. <laughs> I, no I, enjoyed, I enjoyed. the class.
1: That's good. I mean, there's no shortage of interesting discussions with Sean. I mean, that's why I'm doing the Pablo show. Not telling I mean, you something
0: else. I, we want to ask about Maradona, but Pablo's also not telling you. Exactly. What exactly. He had Pablo research. Um, kind of aspects of 1990s south african football of the 1996 um african cup of nations i don't know you probably remember this yeah you then found out all these details about all those players i wonder what he thought of that you probably know dr comado of course ends up <laughs> in, in argentina but uh, for most of those other players, i wonder what you made of that problem
3: yeah. well i didn't i didn't know most of the players i was researching uh, other than than Lucas because he was I think the most famous of the of the bunch I was researching and the other ones I just really didn't know much. I was really fascinated on uh, the ones who ended up in, in Italy um, cause I'm I, uh, yeah because yeah, I, I speak Italian, so I helped with uh, researching in, in Italian and just seeing how the Italian press was reporting on them kind of like trying to always weave the narrative of uh, the political happenings in South Africa, to put it mildly <laughs> at that time, yeah, I always. Guess, uh,
0: not just not just film a singer, but also uh,
3: uh, Mark Fish, right? And yeah, that- Mark Fish was there too. And um, yeah, and every time any of the South Africans did anything, just, even if it's just like something, normally normal footballistically there was always some talk about apartheid and nelson mandela that was like a, an excuse to talk about other things i think that was really fascinating
1: it's so it's so fascinating and I'm, I'm so tempted to actually ask you to unpack your views on that but, but we have to stick to to what we're here to talk about tonight and i guess this actually quite closely relates to what we want to talk about tonight but i want to juxtapose what you said now about how when you began this research you didn't know a lot about these south african footballers but one footballer who no matter how old you were no matter which part of the world you were in at the point in which you discovered them everyone at some point in their lives came to understand who diogo maradona was so to start off i wanted to ask you pablo what is your earliest memory of diogo maradona
3: well my earliest memory is uh from the 1994 world cup uh and the first thing i remember is that he was suspended because he's uh, a uh, cocaine use which i thought was pretty odd this is like something i was um maybe six years old when the 94 world cup happened so i really didn't understand drugs or or, or football or anything really but um i just remember that a huge scandal and i re- Didn't really understand why, because I didn't really understand the magnitude of Maradona and who he was. I just thought I was just a footballer getting suspended. And I just remember that was the first time that that I thought uh, maybe he's like something that's bigger than just a football player, just because of the, the size of the scandal that surrounded that suspension.
0: But before before that, at least your 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 parents and you know, their generation, like they they must have they must have spoken about about Maradona, right? And the way that they reviewed him. I know that at that time, uh, uh, Colombia had like a really good team, Alvarado, etc. Yeah, of course, just in the period before that, Argentina had been dominating football in South America and in the world. So obviously, people in, in People when you were growing up definitely also talked about Maradona and about 86 in particular, right?
3: Yeah, sure. And that's like everyone who proclaimed themselves a football fan, they always talked about Maradona. I was like a, a rite of passage of forming your opinion about Maradona, whether he was the best player ever, like you guys were discussing before, or whether uh, he's um, outside the pitch, antics shoot. Overtake his uh, on the pitch performance. Just uh, just talking about it, that that was like the one of the um, pillars of being a football fan in South America at that point. Yes. Yeah.
1: It's interesting you mentioned that when people talk about Maradona, they always end up talking about him in relation to whether or not we focus on his football or we focus on his off the pitch antics. And I think what explains that is Maradona came to the scene at the rise of new media. So when he burst onto the scene, television was rising, becoming widely accessible to people and it dramatically changed footballing culture. And Maradona was arguably footballing's first star. So to elaborate on some of what you're saying just now, I mean, how did you think, That changed the sport. What does that mean for the sport to have footballing stars, to have people be able to see what they were able to do either live on TV or at least being able to go back to the records of what they did and watch them as much of our
3: generation was only able to really do. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right about that. And I think the change you can perceive is that He's the first football star that, at least in South America, that was uh, a football star beyond his own country and his own city, because so uh, he was not just uh, an idol for Boca Juniors and uh, Argentina fans, but he became an idol throughout Latin America and throughout the world as well. I, I think um, Jorge Valdano, his teammate, made a really good point in a in a column that he published recently, and it was uh, it was translated in The Guardian, I think and he said that um maradona was the icon of the working class and i think that that's totally right and that's something that could not have happened without tv and without the presence that maradona had in tv uh because every time that maradona was on TV, he was doing things that you that well the fans at that time didn't think possible like that uh performance that went viral again just warming up in the european cup i think to the life is life song uh, just like doing kipioppies for a, a few minutes. And every time that Maradona was on TV, that was like a spectacle unto itself. Not just, like, oh, we're gonna go watch a football game. We're gonna watch Maradona play. And um, that became uh, synonymous for a lot of football fans with the experience of football. Not just, uh, oh, we're gonna see this team against this other team, or this. we're gonna analyze the tax- tactics or whatever is we're going to see the spectacle that maradona is providing and when he did antics outside of the pitch that spectacle continued um because uh he was not only very good at playing football he was also very good at uh, playing the media he always knew what to say that could become like uh, something controversial, something that people would talk about. He was like very good. I don't know if uh, he did it on purpose or not, because sometimes it seemed like like he didn't. Uh, but every time, every time he spoke, everything he said uh, was good television. And so, not only he was on TV all the time because he was a good footballer, but also because every time he was in there, he would create good moments for for TV directors to play over and over again. And you can see that now in all the clips that are re- resurfacing because uh, every, everything he said was uh, good for that time and also good now for replaying on YouTube or on TikToks or Instagram or whatever.
1: So we're, we're bringing on, on Tony Karen, uh, who, who was just itching to, to contribute to this question and we're, we're so grateful. Uh, Tony Karen is originally from Cape Town. South Africa, he has written a ton about soccer and football, Uh, depending where you are. I mean, he's he's an American now, so we just want to say soccer for uh, the American constituency. (laughs) Soccer, exactly. Uh, So you should read his original blog, The Rootless Cosmopolitan, to check all of this writing out. And uh, him and Sean co taught a course on global politics. uh, We still do, we just need to get back onto the schedule. And and Pablo is oh, yeah. our proudest achievement. <laughs> so I feel like this is now this is a new school show. I mean, this is this is a new new school because it's uh,
2: Africa's goes a country. I I just wanted to jump in on something that Pablo said, which I think is is yeah. really interesting. Um, you know, two elements that sort of fix Maradona's place in history, but also create sort of enable you know certain things. So the first is that point about television. There was no television and it wasn't you know i, I think a lot of people underestimate Maradona's is, is a candidate for the 1978 argentina national team mm. right, when they host the world cup he's overlooked oh, my first memory of him is 82 when he's like chopped to bits by gentile um in, when italy play argentina like i remember he has this kid who's a ball player and the italians are having none of it and they're just going to kick him to death if they have to um to stop him but you know, just okay. There's that that sense that, like, Pele, like there was. If you think about, like, television is such a recent development of live TV football and satellite that basically Pele. Most people, you know, who would argue that, you know, many people would say Pele is the goat, right? But people never saw Pele. They right. saw him like at four-year mm-hmm. intervals with World Cups between 1958 and 70, and he missed one. um so basically, they never saw him play club football for Santos. And, you know, the, so what you see with Margarita, as you say, is like television enables and global satellite communication enables like a different visual space where you know, now any Argentine player, we know like we know this kid because he's being scouted by Napoli, he's being scouted by Inter Milan or by Barca or like we know the 16 year olds
0: from YouTube. Also Netflix, also Netflix is running like Exactly. Um, documentary series on Boca Juniors and on on River Plate. So even if you even if you long before you make it to Europe, people already also know who you are. Like the whole the whole way that like somebody's made has changed. But d- d-
2: just to finish that, that 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 thought, I think the second dimension, which is really important, is that until the early eighties, there were very very few, if any, players from Latin America or Africa playing in European leagues right? That was just, people played at home, you know, you you heard of Enzo Francescoli in in Uruguay, because, like, you know, um, he's, like, starring in Copa Libertadores, or whatever, like, you you had to go and search for that stuff, like, um, and that migration thing, which, which is, you know, which, the first wave of Argentina and Brazil players start going to Italy, particularly in the early 80s, which, you know, in Maradona's one of the first, and I think what's really interesting about his story there is that he weirdly, because maybe because it's Napoli, because it's southern Italy, and it's because it's the south in Italy, in 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 not just geographically but politically, um, he actually connects with a a lot of Napo- people from Napoli are migrants. Like they go to Germany, they go to other countries because the, there's too much poverty that to find opportunity. So in some ways, he kind of. W- maybe just coincidentally inhabits this role that a lot of people in Southern Europe also identify with, that they're on the periphery and they have to go to the metropole to go and, and get
0: work. Which is something and I want to ask um, Pablo about. And Pablo, oh, just by the way, Peter yeah. Leggi um, reminded us that two other South African players, Peter Leggi is a football historian from, was born in Italy. He us that two other South African footballers of that 1996 squad, Eric Tinkler and David Nyati also played in Italy, which brings me to Italy. Pablo, you lived in Italy and I know you're a Roma supporter. Can you talk a little bit, because in both, Tony sort of alluded, alluded to this now, in both Argentina and Italy, uh, there's there's a peculiar kind of race politics um, and class politics in which, and you mentioned already Maradona's kind of this like figure of the poor and the oppressed, that Maradona both kind of, um, he's placed into, but that he also identified with like, and he exploited some of it. I know that kind of like, you know, Naples, as Tony said, the South, uh, the sort of slur of them being Africans, but Maradona took that on. Similarly, in Argentina, Maradona is sort of, uh, he's short, he looks like, you know, he doesn't look like the stereotype of a sort of white Argentinian. Can you get into some of that, like, like how that played out in Maradona's career?
3: Yeah, sure, well, the things to understand Firstly is that Maradona was born in a in a poor neighborhood in, in Buenos Aires which people in Buenos Aires call villas and his neighborhood is called Villa Fiorito and that just um, in, in Latin America i guess uh, class just um must science your whole, li- whole life and in Argentina it's a very particular thing to come from a villa uh, even one of the most popular music genres in Argentina, it's called Cumbia Villera, because it's made by poor people from the Villas, and it's um it's something that just um, it um, permeates the whole conception of who Maradona is in Argentina. So for Argentinians, Maradona is a working class man, and he always was a working class man, even if he was winning millions at Barcelona or at Napoli or whatever. And that translates very well to napoli because napoli as uh, tony was saying uh for a very long time was the place uh, of workers in italy uh there's a very huge north south um divide in italy in, in which uh, the northern cities torino milano uh genova and uh, to a certain extent roma uh which maybe is the north maybe not depending on who you ask um uh, those are the cities where you can find jobs. So, people from the south, where Napoli is the biggest city, moved to the north to get jobs, usually working at, um, at factories or uh, industries, getting like blue collar jobs. And um, the people in Naples saw themselves as that, like a, a, a city that was essentially working class. And not only that, but they saw themselves as. Uh, their Neapolitan identity coming first from their Italian identity, because also Italy is a very young country. Italy only got reunited in 1860, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, And before that, there was a lot of different like principalities and kingdoms and stuff like that. So there was not much of a national identity and there was a strong regional identity. And in Naples or Napoli, it remains. In in fact, uh in Napoli you can hear most people in the streets, they speak in Neapolitan, not in Italian, which in, in other cities because of the migration from other parts is not uh, is not the same. A lot of people speak Italian because they, they moved from some their families moved from, from somewhere else. So Italian was the lingua franca there, so they learned to speak Italian. But people in Napoli usually have been there for many decades, so they speak Neapolitan. And they see themselves as some sort of, uh, like a, a rebel city inside of Italy. And in Serie A when Napoli travels to other stadiums, they are greeted with uh, racist chants, like uh, sometimes they're called Africans. Sometimes uh, there's a chant that goes like, um, well, there was a, 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 a trash collection crisis in Naples in the, in the 80s. And so there's like this idea that people from Napoli don't bathe. Uh, and so the chant goes: uh, uh, Vesuvius, a volca- the volcano. You should wash them with fire. And um, that, like, helped create a, a different identity in Napoli. And when Maradona got there and helped them win two scudettos and a UEFA Cup and, a, and an Italian Cup, if I'm not mistaken, that made them feel like they they didn't need Italy. They were like their own thing. They were just above the rest of Italy. That just like solidified uh, their idea that they don't need to ask the rest of Italy for like permission to exist. Like they can exist on their own terms. And that's why you see that visceral reaction to Maradona's death in Italy. I don't know if you saw the videos, but there was like fireworks everywhere. People went to the graveyard to cry with their elders who have passed before uh, because Maradona gave them a sense of identity that wasn't wasn't just uh, a negative identity there wasn't just uh, the Camorra it wasn't just um, uh, bad economic policies or corrupt politicians or whatever but it was uh, Napoli can triumph Napoli can win and napoli can not only win but they can win with someone like maradona who is a man of the people like like most people in napoli consider themselves
1: i wanted to ask a follow-up question related to what you've just said now and i mean you've already kind of answered it just towards the end now and this might be preempting a lot of the conversation later which is about you know maradona as potentially a nationalist figure but i first want to talk to him talk about him rather as A working class icon, which is to say that a lot of footballers are generally from working class backgrounds, whether or not they're footballers that are coming from a different part of the world and playing in another part of the world. Working class identity is central in a lot of cases to being a footballer, as far as explaining your background story, how you came to be the successful individual that you eventually become. And what I've wondered is why? what was so special about Maradona? Because was he the trailblazer? Was he the person who actually paved the way for being of working class origins, being so central to your identity as a footballer? Or what was it that he did that made him stand out, that made him become this working class icon that made working class people across the world, as you were saying just now, Pablo, and even Tony was alluding to it earlier, that despite the riches that they eventually accumulated at some point in their lives, were people that no matter which working class community you went to, whether it's a township here in (laughs) South Africa, a village in Tanzania, a favela in South America, anywhere in the world, they looked at Maradona and they said, he is one of us. How did that happen?
3: Well, I think what Maradona did is that he never, Uh, shied away from from those origins and also he always embraced them Uh, because there were other south americans playing in europe before even argentinas there was for example uh, uh, osvaldo ardiles and ricardo villa played for Tottenham in the in the 80s Uh, but they were like middle class argentinians um and they never like emphasized their their origins They, they just um their um, their narrative, their narrative they, they told about themselves was like they they were uh, the first wave of South Americans making it big in the European leagues. Well, uh, Maradona was always talking about his uh, humble origins. He was always talking about the people from from his neighborhood. He was always talking about the humble origins of his parents, and he was always um, with his uh, life. He was also living uh the life that he was preaching to put it somehow in his narrative because he was always um associating with those kind of people. He was uh he was never shying away from like meeting poor people in Napoli uh and not just for like a charity event or something like most footballers would do now but he would like befriend people in um in in uh in working class positions in Napoli so um he he would talk to I don't know the doorman at the stadium and, and befriend him and, and and help him if his family needed something. Um, and I think that's that that's why his um persona as uh, as a working class man uh continued because he made it a point of his life to 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 be one. Um, he wasn't. He wasn't just one. He was. He obviously was born, uh, working class. But he also tried to uh, continue that association throughout his life.
0: Go ahead, Tony. Yeah,
2: um, I love. <clears throat> I love this. I think this is. Th- this is getting to something really important and something that probably, you know, people of the left looking at football today feel a great sense of disappointment and nostalgia because what maradona represents i think is like you know i don't think it's correct to imagine him as like a political activist or like as a politician you know that we're gonna locate on a spectrum somewhere is he a social democrat is he a communist or whatever because it's not he's a rebel he's a working class rebel who you know comes up in a in a system that's run by a dictatorship, right, uh, Videla's dictatorship, that's when he, he's cutting his teeth, he's got to go for national, he's got to go to the military for national service um, in his early days as, a, as a, a player. And he's constantly rebelling against this kind of system, the structure uh, of, you know, that subordinates the poor, that rigs the system against the poor and and he's he's doing things his own way he's disrupting he's sticking it to the bosses he's going up to Juve Juve, and he's beating the Agnelli's like that you know that message for Napoli it's like the owners of Fiat and their club and Maradona's sticking it to them and River Plate is is the bourgeois club in Buenos Aires and he's sticking it to, to them so there's that you know identification with that symbol but now Anybody who becomes a professional footballer is instantly like warp speed, upwardly mobile. Like suddenly they are fa- fabulously rich compared with where they've come from. And so you would think there's a choice. And, you know, like, do they identify with the class to which they are getting access and, you know, being invited into because they suddenly have millions of, of, of dollars? Or do they maintain that sense of their origins and the solidarity? in particular, that connection with that community that they're lucky enough to have escaped because of of their abilities as a footballer, but nonetheless remain connected with. And I do think we'd probably all agree that today you look at football and you're like, man, like, is Marcus Rashford as good as it gets? I was gonna you know, ask about him. I was gonna Marcus
0: ask I mean, that's great, but that's parity.
2: Marcus Rashford is not a disruptor in the way that Maradona was. He's not challenging the power structure um he's he's a member of
1: the he's a member of the british empire
2: yeah exactly he's he's a a, a lovely chap and he plays for a crap club but um (laughs) (laughs) but 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 you know look at all the brazilians and you're like oh my god to a man they support bolsonaro right what happened to socrates and the spirit of you know you're a working class footballer for the working class
0: Throwing that out for you, guys. No, you, you. I'm always struck when you when you look on the on Instagram, for example. I used to have this idea that I'll do like a study of um, kind of footballers and their Instagram accounts. And for a minute, I just followed African footballers, and essentially what they do is they they mostly either thank God or Allah. They talk about their cars. They pose in some clothes and they're standing in a gated community, like they vary, and they'll put like a scripture up. Or they'll put a verse on the Quran. They they generally they don't they well, if they're political, they usually pose in the outfit of wh- whichever ruling party is running a country. So particularly South African ones, if they retired, you'll see them prancing around in ANC outfits. So that's that's kind of, I don't think there's like a there's like a South African footballer, just are the ones that I sort of know best, who's actually got dressed, I I, I would suppose in like an EFF outfit. Or, you know, this is the economic freedom front, which is sort of radical party that thinks it's like a Chavistas. But you never see that kind of thing um, among footballers. But I want to bring it back just quickly on this question of, because we're going to get, the next question is definitely going to be sort of whether Maradona is a leftist. I know Tony says, can you place him, blah, blah, blah. But I want to ask quickly first about in Argentina, there's a debate often just specific to Argentina, which is Maradona has historically identified with um political leaders or presidents who are associated with Perón's party. So, like, a lot of people will say he's a he's a Peronist, that that, that meant that he was, like, you know, he wasn't really leftist. He was just a nationalist and that, um, you know, he supported this party. And he supported this party even when they were sometimes putting up right-wing leaders. Like, uh, what was his name? Carlos Menem. Can you, Pablo, can you can you help us quickly? Somebody just wrote and said the Brazil the, the Brazilian support Jesus. The so Dr. Miller just said the Brazilian support Jesus. Maybe um, it's Jesus. I don't know. Maybe it's Jesus, Excuse, Gabriel the Jesus. Um, Jesus. The question I want to ask is just kind of like probably just for people who don't know what that implies, because when you look at peronism like from the outside, it does look like a kind of leftist project, you know, very pro-trade union. Uh, Government intervening in the economy, uh, you know, et cetera, and so on. But like, if you don't know that kind of thing, like, what is what does that mean? And Maradona is kind of associated with that political party.
3: Yeah, well, you're right that that's um, that's the beginning of the current leftist movement in Argentina. But it's a it's a complex phenomenon because um, uh, because of how Argentina went through dictatorship and through military government a few times. So leftism for a while couldn't be really be practiced openly. And so it developed like a few different ways of, um, of leftist polit- politics in Argentina. Some of which are more uh, openly leftist about uh, their economy policies, some of which are more, like you said, more um, uh, populist, nationalists, and right now they have a, a sort of mix-up of different things that I, uh, uh, as someone who who doesn't live in Argentina, I'm not, I don't completely understand. But right now the government uh, there, uh, uh, Alfredo Fernández, who is a kirchnerista. Uh, I think that could be definitely be placed as the as a leftist government uh, because uh, he, uh, he comes from the line of uh, uh, Nestor and Cristina Fernandez the Kirchner, who were leftist and who were trying uh, a project to unify leftist movements in in Latin America, uh, which uh, didn't go too far because most of the leftist governments who were in power in, in uh, Latin America are not in power anymore. Um, and I think uh, Maradona didn't really see himself as part of the party, but more as part of a broader movement, the sort of movement that the Kirchens were trying to build. And so he, he wouldn't say, I think, that he belonged to this party, this other party, but more uh, that he would support policies that would help the working class people in general. And um, maybe he sometimes supported politicians who said that they were doing that, but maybe eventually when they implemented policies, they weren't doing that. Uh, And so he was uh, very quick to change uh, uh, his support from one to the other. Uh, but he was uh, to his death. He was friends with uh, uh, Castro, Fidel Castro, in Cuba, and he was also friends with uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. And to my knowledge, he he didn't criticize the Chavista project neither when Chavez was in power or after when uh, Maduro took over. Um, and uh, so, so I don't think he he was. I don't think he was very committed to. A, a political cause and to a political project, more to a set of values that he perceived that uh, his uh, political friends were committed to, but not so much as ah, let's gonna let let's uh, get together and do this, but more like I think this is the right thing to do, and this is the direction we sh- should be going, but someone else should be doing those things, not not me yeah absolutely, like you know there's that famous
2: in one of the many Oh, it's like somebody talks about that conversation he has with Fidel, where Fidel says, "You know, you should get into politics," and he's like, "I'm not interested in politics, like politics, like." And you know, I think it, it's much more in the spirit of of a sort of game recognizes game. Like Maradona is a working class rebel, and he also represents a nation that's subordinate in the imperialist chain, right? In the in the 80s, like all of Latin America around him, not only Argentina but Chile, uh, Peru, etc are all basically suffering under military dictators that have been installed by the U.S. or with the U.S. help. And so there's the sense of we are subordinate and then there's the Malvinas, right? And, and and you know, that clash with Britain. And again, like you're part of a, a, a subordinate chain and then you, you have like Fidel and Chavez and um, Morales. And it's kind of a game recognizes game, right? He's seeing his that same sense of disrupting a, an order of power in, in in these figures. Like there's an innate sort of connection, the, the values, the solidarity, et cetera, and the sticking it to the powers that are rigging the world against people like Maradona and the communities that he comes from. But, you know, I don't think, I think there's sometimes I'm a bit of a mistake on the left that we imagine like working class culture should be like somehow kind of, you know, essentially informed by sort of a set of kind of European 19th century uh, okay. or early 20th century readings and it's like it's just never going to be like that like it's like the, but that's not that's not the point it's that is working class culture from a perspective of like scientific socialism is always going to look messy and strange and, and not conf- not check the boxes but that's not the point um because you're not measuring i don't i don't think it's correct to try and measure um maradona as a political activist he's a political icon but that's very different
1: I mean, that's a great way to to sort of segue into the question I want to ask now is we shouldn't look at Maradona as a political activist. We should look at him as a political icon, but there's also a question about how do we complicate his legacy because we also don't want to travel too far into the territory of deifying him. And much as we acknowledge, as we've done just now, that there were contradictions around his political ideas and his values. There's also the personal, right? And depending on your persuasion, you believe the personal is political, or perhaps you don't. But there's the fact that in Maradona's later years, for example, he made some bad decisions, made some bad political decisions in 2015 and 2016. He agreed to participate in commemorating a march by the Moroccans into Western Sahara or the Polisario territory, and he's also accused of abusing his girlfriend. And there are a lot of people who make accusations about him being this destructive figure in their lives. And, you know, football is is always a complicated subject because there are these individuals who are icons, as we've said just now, but who for a large contingent of people are people who represent nothing but harm nothing but despair and nothing but hurt and pain. So the question is, how do, we, how do we appropriately complicate that legacy? And this not only applies to Maradona, but I guess all figures generally. And how do we talk about the side of Maradona that wasn't just about being a footballing genius, wasn't just about being a political icon that resonated with the working class, but who in some instances was a bad person?
3: Well, I think... It's a difficult question. No, it's a very good question, but I have a long answer and I want to make it shorter. And I think... uh, Well, Jorge Valdano made a good point in that column I was referencing earlier, which is that there's Maradona as a footballing icon, as you said, not just a very good player, but but the idol that he became by playing uh, for Argentina and for Napoli and Boca Juniors. Uh, And the other thing is, uh, his his person and even though those two things were in the same body they were most of the time in, interpreted as separate entities like in Argentina usually there's it's a different thing to discuss Maradona as a player than Maradona after he retired and all the things that he did after he retired and I think that's something that Uh, especially people in Argentina do, but also fans in other places, because his um, iconography is so strong that it's almost as if he, like some part of him had already died, and uh, before he died, some part of him had died when he retired playing football. And like that legacy of him playing football just remained the same. And then the other things he did was like a different person doing other things and it's something that uh i saw a tweet yesterday that i think encapsulates like how strong argentinians feel about that legacy of maradona is someone someone from argentina said uh my grandpa died in march and because of the pandemic uh, only one person could go and and see his burial and now maradona died and thousands of people when to see his burial and you know what that's fine because my grandfather my grandfather never dribbled six argentinians and scored against the fucking english in 86 and so that's like there's there is it's um it's a it's a national identity that goes beyond who he was as a player and who he was as a person and that has already been settled i think that part of him uh, in the minds of most people, that's, that's what it is. He was the best player or, or the second best player but in Argentina, everyone would say the best player ever. And the person who made Argentina, which is a small country with uh, a small economy, uh, be the World Cup, um, win the World Cup, and be a country that everyone talks about every time there is a football conversation. You have to talk about Argentina. Uh, now, uh, his other things, uh, they're discussed. They're, they're being discussed, now, and I think it's good that they're being discussed. But there's like that psychological uh, uh, basis now in which I I don't think whatever we say about uh, Maradona as a person is going to penetrate that myth that was created around him.
2: I think actually to to follow on. I think those excellent points from from Pablo. Just to follow on. I don't think any icons, any people who've been iconized and lionized in the way that Maradona is are, are perfect and far from it. They're often fundamentally flawed. You know, The one that's often mentioned in the same breath as Maradona in terms of archive, Che Guevara. I mean, Che Guevara as a military strategist was appalling. Like He had absolutely ridiculous ideas about how to actually wage the kind of struggles he was trying to wage. That didn't matter at the point. His personal politics, questionable, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like icons are created also by the by the people who create them by the need that those communities have to project something onto people which is probably always grander than the reality and yes we should always know that everybody that we iconize and lionize and hero worship is probably fundamentally flawed in all sorts of ways that's the human condition that i don't think that negates uh, anything it's it's just it's a lesson to ourselves that actually the values that we all share, we need to fight for. Even we need to challenge our icons on,
0: frankly. Okay, so since since people make icons and icons are created in the image of people, I know Tony doesn't want me to ask this. So the question is, Tony, we'll start with you. Who <laughs> settle this debate once and for all? Who is the greatest of all time? <laughs> and Pablo, I want to go with you.
2: How, is, how are you supposed to give Matias <laughs> like a fair shake in this? Because, like, we've not seen any footage of him ever playing. Right? There <laughs> <laughs> you go.
0: Fred, Matias is Fred, Fred, Fred is the greatest of all time. Fred. Sadio Anyway, I mean, just on a serious note, because this, we talked here about, we, uh, you know, he's the first global football star. Everybody saw, like, that the greatest goal of the century. It was on television. You could see it. And he's in memes with that life is life thing when he's at Napoli. So he's definitely a mediated star. But is he? Uh, let me make my case. Let me, because I, this, maybe this will get you guys out of your afraid to tell the people how you feel mode. I think Maradona is the greatest player of all time. He might have something to do with the fact that I was a teenager in the 1980s. Um, but I think if you purely take it on like what he achieved, so he takes a national team. How many of you, I know Jorge Valdano was part of it and so on, but how many of you remember or can just offhand name anyone else who was in the team with him at, in, in the Argentina national team in 1986 when, when they won the, the World Cup, uh, the central role that he played in that tournament. So he took a country that nobody thought could do it, and they won a World Cup. As Pablo reminded us, he won two Serie A's, what is the equivalent now of the Champions League and the Coppa Italia, and he won all this with Napoli. He did this at the time that Napoli was not considered, like a, Napoli Napoli didn't have like Michel Platini, Goulet uh, and them were, well, no, that's later, right? Goulet and Van Bastemden, I think that's later, but most of the Italian clubs have like really good players and he takes this, this small club, I think they had they'd almost been relegated the season before, and he takes them to win this thing. He takes he takes Argentina again to the World Cup finals, with again with a bunch of players. I mean, I know some of those players, but the average person won't remember who those other players are. The other candidate that people like to bring up, and Tony's already told us the, the story about Pele, but the candidate that I think most get the young kids all uh, uh, excited is uh, Lionel, <laughs> Lionel Messi is the candidate. I'm not disputing that. But where does Lionel Messi play? He plays at Barcelona. Some, I think somebody said the other day that it's like he plays it like a big company. Like he plays it like the biggest company in the world, the biggest multinational. He's playing next to other players that you know who those players are. Then he's never won the, the, the World Cup for his country. He's tried a bunch of times, but and I think he plays better players, but he's never won it. And then to add insult to injury, the other player that people often compare him with has actually won the European Championship with his country. I don't think that player is as good as him. I'm putting this on record because my son says that I make excuses. I I support Ronaldo. I don't. I think Messi is a better player. But I still think Cardona is the greatest of all time. I'm going to stand by that and I'm going to stand down. Okay, who's gonna, who's gonna, who's
1: gonna offer their their opinion next? (laughs) Okay, you know what I mean. Um, Hey,
2: what what I'll tell you is like the greatest of all time. It's probably somebody we never saw, or most of the world never saw. My vote goes to. Oh my God, Tony! So careful here, Tony. Tony's so
3: careful
0: here. here. Come on, Tony, put your card on the table. Who do you you say your vote goes to, Tony?
2: It's a team game. <laughs> it's, like, it's like I mean Maradona almost single handed but you know, there was Bertoni, there was passerella there were some decent players around him in 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 uh in eighty two. And by the way, you know what we've not discussed here, which we don't need to,
0: but Maradona
2: was a terrible manager.
0: I know, I know,
3: he's <laughs> horrible. But that's not a But he's, terrib- he's terrible <laughs> sorry, his terrible mm-hmm. managing skills. <laughs> Gave us a great clip, which uh, which was that Argentina almost fell out of the 2010 World Cup, and and they got their their tickets to the World Cup in the last minute against Peru, in a very rainy pitch in Buenos Aires, with a last minute goal, and so Maradona ran into the pitch, and mud it all, just like slid on the mud. It was that was great, <laughs> great TV. You
1: know, you know what I wanted to say though to get my my answer, which is which is, I mean, I will admit that you mentioned this other player that people often talk about alongside Messi. At some stage, that was my goat, purely because when I started watching football, he was the person on TV. He was at Manchester United. He was on the rise, and that's the player I latched onto. And, of course, I've grown older. I've heard about his what he's done, and I'm past that. But what I often think about, and Tony was, was mentioning this earlier, about how you know, people on the left often yearn for this era where we had these working class icons genuinely is that it feels like in the in the almost post-historical age we live in now, there can't really be any goat that isn't anyone that comes before that is Maradona or someone that's come before purely because I just feel like the nature of, of footballing today and this is a long discussion that, we can leave for another show is that it's become so commercialized so commoditized and so on and so forth that the the player who was once in the capital wage labor relation was once more resembling a worker than they were capital they're now so much resembling capital that they've there's a distance that's grown between the players and the communities they are supposed to represent and so on the sport has been disconnected from these communal roots that it once had that there's no player who would really capture a people's imagination as Maradona did, as the people that came before him. You know, it's, you know, you think of, you think of, you know, Hegel when he talks about those great individuals of history, those world historical figures and we're living past an age where those world historical figures can't even exist because unfortunately soccer players are just too uninspiring, to, to alienate it really from their labors, the truth of it all, they carry out the craft as this competition that's disconnected from its broader social context. And I think that, I don't know who the goat is. But your answer is, I you didn't
0: saying, in the you, saying you saying it's Maradona, basically. Without saying it, it's, it's probably Maradona, but I didn't, live, I didn't live in a time where I could even
1: understand what it means for a football player to be a goat, because as much as I'd like to say it's, as much as I'd like to say statistically it's Messi, Messi isn't that, Cristiano Ronaldo isn't that, no one that I've grown up watching live, grown up watching their careers unfold can possibly be that. So it's Maradona, just because those who came before me, who knew what it was like to grow up watching Maradona play, say it's Maradona. So that's what I have to say.
3: I think, to add, to add to your point, I think it's very difficult to compare to different eras of football because of how they played and how they trained. Probably if Maradona had to train like Messi and Ronaldo have to train right now, probably he wouldn't make the cut in most of the teams right now. Um, but and also and so i'm not going to pick any of them because i think it's there's there's no point in in comparing who is the better player because they were not playing at the same time but also i think that when Pele dies the reaction in brazil is not, not going to be anywhere close to what the reaction in argentina was to maradona's dying and so just for that i think maradona had a bigger impact in his life as a footballer and football person.
0: We still don't know who Tony, but he says that
2: a goat. No, I, I mean, I, I like what, what Pablo said there, because you're actually, you, you're measuring his power as a symbol. It's not really, I agree, you can't compare players across uh, eras, you can't, yeah, I mean, and, and more than that, I think even where does this goat thing come from? Like, what, <laughs> in what universe? Does this whole idea of a goat, you know, it, 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 don't we need to unpack that very idea that football is somehow going to produce like you know the all-time singular individual who's going to transform history by themselves, etc. I mean, I actually think it's a problematic concept to be honest. I
0: uh, yeah. anyway, we we, we we know everybody's got to go back to work, but we don't want to keep everybody. We can we can this goat debate will be like another hour. So. Yeah. The, I think the the, the the only reason I think I like the go debate is is this is this is the revenge of the South. Like all the three main candidates for the greatest player of all time uh, happen to be from the southern part of the world, and even more, they all happen to be South American, which is also interesting given how football is organized in the world. With the best players I don't know what the count for World Cups is between Europe and South America, but is South America ahead? I I, I didn't look this morning. But yeah, I think it's it's for me it, it it matters that they that they happen to be these players um, from from the southern part of the world. In any case, um, this is this has been wonderful. We're gonna definitely have you guys back at, at, at some point again. This was a great discussion, and I think it's a fitting t- tribute to Diego Maradona. We're gonna thank our guests, um, Tony, Karen, Pablo Medina, Rui Uribe, um, and for myself, William Shoke. Um, well not myself William <laughs> myself Sean Jacobs uh, okay <laughs> yeah, it's like, I think I've lost my, my bearings today I, I, it's, just, it's Maradona man and from our producer Antoinette Engel thank you very much um, and we see you guys next week again oh next week we have our end of year program it, uh, we, we don't know how long it's going to last but it will be like a Christmas party so in any case everybody take 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 care and take it easy